tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith. You are in a farmhouse on the southern coast of England, the autumn countryside around you desolate and bleak. And you know that in the dusk outside, waiting patiently for you, silently watching for you, is an enemy from whom there may be no escape. This is the opening to Escape's version of The Birds, a short story written by Daphne du Maurier in 1952. The existence of this broadcast might come as a surprise to many people because the story has become so closely associated with Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 film adaptation. When we turn our attention to Escape's 1954 version, along with another radio adaptation from that time, different aspects of the story begin to shine through, and it becomes legible as what I've been calling an infrastructural adventure. In this episode, we'll focus on how infrastructure prompts an attention to scale because it spans multiple levels of organization from the local lighthouse or plantation to the global network. Scale means taking a particular view of something, from the microscopic to the planetary. And we'll see that different versions of the birds enact very different scale-making projects. I began a multiscalar analysis in the last episode, when I compared Escape's version of Leiningen versus the Ants to the Hollywood film version, Naked Jungle. We saw how Naked Jungle reshaped the story to focus on the interpersonal relationship between Leiningen and Joanna. What time is it? Whenever you wish, madam. I wouldn't want to upset your schedule. This is what I'm calling the micro-level of narrative scale. Hitchcock's film version of The Birds does something similar, constructing a dense web of interpersonal intrigue around the central characters. There's the sexual tension between Melanie Daniels and Mitch Brenner. So you came up to see Annie, huh? Yes. I think you came up to see me. Now, why would I want to see you of all people? The Freudian family romance between Mitch and his mother, Lydia. Uh, Mother, I'd like you to meet Melanie Daniels. Miss Daniels, my mother. How do you do? How do you do, Miss Daniels? The love triangle of Mitch, Melanie, and Annie Hayworth 
Oh, pretty. What are they? Lovebirds. I see. And a general concern with parent-child relationships. Hey! No touching allowed! All of these sparks flying at the micro level of the narrative really draw our attention. And the bird attacks that are ostensibly the focus of the story take a back seat. Some critics of the film have even interpreted the birds as allegorical expressions of the tensions between the characters. It's clear that Hitchcock and the screenwriter Evan Hunter worked hard to direct our attention to the emotional dynamics among the central characters even if they had no intention to fully explain them. De Maurier's short story and the radio adaptations of it take a very different approach to narrative scale. Unlike the film, the story and the radio broadcasts don't give us all that much information about the main characters, and that makes it a lot harder to imagine the bird attacks as being allegories for their interpersonal relationships. One critic wrote that in contrast to Hitchcock's film, Du Maurier's story is a brief, blunt tale that's shorn of humanity and short on hope. Du Maurier has no time for a love story, let alone Freudian overtones or love triangles, and likewise, she has no time for children. Du Maurier's birds, unlike Hitchcock's, ignore schools and children's birthday parties altogether. Du Maurier's story also lacks a sense that at the conclusion, characters have grown closer to each other or developed a deeper understanding of themselves what one critic called the fertility in character relationships that emerges at the end of Hitchcock's film. The result is that the short story, more than the film, presents a disconnect between the micro-level of human social interaction and the bird attacks. The hero of Du Maurier's story is named Nat Hawken, He's a World War II veteran with a wartime disability who's living with his unnamed wife and two children on a farm in Cornwall, England. The escape adaptation stays pretty close to the stark original story, but it does add a little bit of fertility to the relationship between the central couple. For one thing, the wife is given a name, Debbie. An early scene also shows how Nat's tendency to become morbid and aloof has put a strain on their marriage. Do you know this morning two girls flew so close they knocked off my cap? Joe said yesterday when the school bus let her off, there was quite a few of them overhead as if they'd been followed. Oh, well, I suppose it means a hard winter. They always seem to know. Perhaps a message comes to them in autumn. A warning. About winter. And about death. Nat. Many of them will die, and I think they know it. Perhaps they feel they have to spill their motion out before they die. Like people who know their time is up and run about stupidly driving themselves. I wish you wouldn't talk like that, Nat. That, that black side of you that stirred up the trouble between us before. Well, I'm sorry, Debbie. But it, it's come over me lately as I've watched them. The land birds mingling with the sea birds in a sort of strange, unnatural partnership. Land and sea. 
There's life and death. In the show's final moments, Debbie confesses to Nat that she feels closer to him than ever before. Nat. Yes? The Triggs. They're dead, aren't they? Yes. We're all alone. Strange. I feel closer to you than, than I'd ever. That it should take something like this to bring us... Debbie, you, you may be interested to know that right now, I do not feel very superior. Don't, Nat. Oh, Nat. Nat, what do I do? <laughs> I don't know, Debbie. I do not know. In this brief exchange, the mysterious bird attacks become servants to interpersonal melodrama but to a much lesser degree than in Hitchcock's film. When we compare the film and the radio show, we see the extent to which Hitchcock's film bends the narrative towards the micro or interpersonal level of narrative scale. The film also stands apart when we zoom out to a medium or mezzo-level perspective. This is where social institutions, not interpersonal dynamics, are the dominant actors. A key question here at the mezzo level is whether or not the bird attacks extend beyond a single coastal town. Hitchcock made interpersonal intrigue the centerpiece of the film, and that meant narrowing the scope of the story to the picturesque town of Bodega Bay. Watching the film, it's easy to believe that the bird attacks are only happening in Bodega Bay and that they may even be caused by the arrival of Melanie Daniels and her lovebirds. At one point, Melanie talks to her father on the telephone, and he's unaware of the attacks, suggesting that they're only happening in Bodega Bay. Oh, Daddy, there were hundreds of them. No, I'm not hysterical. I'm trying to tell you this as calmly as I know how. All right, Daddy. Yes, Daddy. Well, just now, not... 15 minutes ago. Near the end of the movie, Mitch hears a news report on a car radio. The bird attacks have subsided for the time being. Bodega Bay seems to be the center, though there are reports of minor attacks on Sebastopol and a few on Santa Rosa. Bodega Bay has been cordoned off by roadblocks. Most of the townspeople have managed to get out, but there are still some isolated pockets of people. No decision has been arrived at yet as to what the next step will be, but there's been some discussion as to whether the military should go in. It appears that the bird attacks come in waves with long intervals between. The reason for this does not seem clear as yet. In this moment, the film hints at a broader scope to the crisis, but never makes it explicit. Hitchcock considered ending the film with a shot of San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge covered in birds. That would have given us a sense that this was a truly national emergency. Instead, the film ends with the rays of dawn seeming to promise deliverance and our experience of the bird attacks confined to Bodega Bay.
By contrast, de Maurier's story places its emphasis on the national and international level, what I'm calling the mezzo or middle level of narrative scale. De Maurier's interest in the bird attacks as a national crisis might have something to do with the fact that the story was written just after World War II. When the attacks begin, Nat thinks, it's just like air raids in the war. The crisis in de Maurier's short story is clearly national in scope, and that's also the case in both the escape adaptation of the story and another radio adaptation, Lux Radio Theater's broadcast from 1953. From Hollywood, the Hollywood Radio Theater. In both the Lux and the escape broadcasts, a meso-level social collapse is indicated by the disruption of the radio network. This is a trope that was made famous by Orson Welles in his iconic adaptation of War of the Worlds from 1938. What anything means... Wait a minute, something's happening. A shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. The Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! Now the whole field's caught up by the woods, the bars, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point... Lux's version of the birds is an hour long, so it has more time to develop references to Wells' famous panic broadcast. As the bird attacks begin, Nat and his family gather around the radio and learn of the national scope of the emergency through a live report from London. John, come quickly, it's on the wireless. What? About the birds. The home office at 11 a.m. today. Reports from all over the country are coming in hourly about the vast quantity of birds flocking above towns, villages, and outlying districts, causing obstruction and damage and even attacking individuals. The birds settled on rooftops, on window ledges, and on chimneys. The sight has been so unusual that traffic came to a standstill in many thoroughfares, work was abandoned in shops and offices, and the streets were, and still are, crowded with people standing about to watch the birds. We take you now to our roving microphone in Piccadilly Circus. I've been standing here for hours. We cannot begin to describe the enormous variety of birds which are circling overhead. I have never seen anything like it. Uh, it seems that we're having a little trouble with our mobile unit, a number of birds that settled on the antenna. Uh, well, can't you chase them off or something? We've got to complete this broadcast. Let's try throwing something at them. I don't know stones, anything. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we regret this unfortunate circumstance. I, I'm sure we'll have the situation straightened out in a moment. Do you please bear with us on this most unusual of all days? And now we'll return you to our main studio for a brief program of recorded music. There are echoes here of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast, where news reports about a Martian invasion would cut to Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. 
We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. Later on the Lux broadcast, the family hears the sound of an airplane which inspires hope that the national military have arrived to exterminate the birds. Good old RAF. I wonder what they intend doing. That booming, I knew the sound. The sound of an exploding plane. And I remember tales of flyers who had blundered into flocks of geese and ducks. Bodies that splintered propellers and smashed windshields. And what could pilots do against birds? Suicidal birds. Similar scenes appear in Escape's version of the birds. Like here, where Nat and Debbie learn about the national scope of the crisis through the radio and also experience that crisis through a breakdown in radio's normally scheduled programming. A national emergency was proclaimed at 4 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> Measures are being taken to safeguard the lives and property of the population, but it must be understood that these are not easy to affect immediately due to the unforeseen and unparalleled nature of the present crisis. It is absolutely imperative that everyone remain indoors until further notice. The birds, in vast numbers, are attacking everything in sight. The population is asked to remain calm and not to panic. There will be no further transmission from any broadcasting station until 7 a.m. tomorrow. It's like this all over, then. All over. All over. All over. What these sequences show is that Du Maurier's story and the radio adaptations of it are calibrated towards the mezzo level of social and national institutions, and they use the disruption of radio broadcasting to conjure anxieties about the failure of national politics, military power, and media communication. Okay, we've talked about the story now on a micro and a mezzo level, let's zoom out one last time to a macro level perspective that's global in scope. One critic explained the difference between Du Maurier's short story and Hitchcock's film adaptation by saying that where Hitchcock's birds swoop at families, Du Maurier's birds seem to aim at global conquest. In fact, Hitchcock's film goes out of its way to discredit interpretations of the bird attacks that are planetary in scope, that is, that are ecological or apocalyptic. This happens in a scene that takes place in a restaurant called The Tides. There, we find an apocalyptic view expressed by a drunk man who quotes passages from the Bible. It's the end of the world! Two Bloody Marys, Deke. What actually happened at the school? A bunch of crows attacked the school kids. It's the end of the world. Thus saith the Lord God unto the mountains and the hills and the rivers and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, shall bring a sword upon you. 
and I will devastate your high places. Ezekiel chapter 6. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink. Isaiah chapter 5. It's the end of the world. An ecological perspective is expressed by a female ornithologist named Mrs. Bundy. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind's Sam, rather... Sam, three southern fried chicken. Baked potato on all of them. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. Birds have been on this planet, Miss Daniels, since Archaeopteryx, 140 million years ago. Doesn't it seem odd? that they'd wait all that time to start a a war against humanity. The film critic Robin Wood suggests that the drunk and Mrs. Bundy in the Tides restaurant function to diffuse these apocalyptic and ecological perspectives. By making these extreme attitudes explicit and ridiculous, he writes, It's the end of the world! Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. Hitchcock prevents us from maintaining them. Hitchcock might have felt the need to inoculate his adaptation of the story against these attitudes because they're so audible in the original story. We can hear the planetary overtones in both Du Maurier's short story and the radio adaptations of it in the way they link the behavior of the birds to climate. Listen to the story's opening line, which is also the opening of the Escape broadcast. On December the 3rd, the wind changed overnight, and it was winter. From the outset, we get a link between the birds and unusual weather events, in particular, a bitterly cold east wind. We're listening to a field recording of wind made by the sound artist Francisco Lopez. The birds? Well, it must be the weather. The sudden change confused them. It has to be that. The importance of climate is emphasized again when Nat speaks to his neighbors. Hello, Mr. Hawkins. Was the mystery around Mrs. Trigg? Uh, summer's a boss, but can you tell me where this cold is coming from? Russia? I've never seen such a change, and it's going on, the wireless says. Something to do with the Arctic Circle. And again, when he listens to a government statement on the radio. It is thought that the Arctic airstream is causing the birds to migrate south in immense numbers, and that intense hunger may drive them to attack human beings. Householders are warned to see to their windows, doors, and chimneys, and to take all precautions for the safety of their children. Further bulletins will be issued later. Nat figures out that the timing of the bird attacks is linked to the tides. There was some law the birds obeyed, he says, and it was all to do with the east wind and the tide. Now, I've noticed that the birds come in with the tide, but the tide will go out about nine tonight, and we should have a lull of about six hours. I could slip out during that time and go to the farm. So, Du Maurier's story and the radio versions of it are saturated with a sense of planet through the overt connection between global weather patterns and the strange behavior of the birds. The fact that the radio versions of the birds emphasize the planetary dimensions of the story makes them worth revisiting in an era of ecological crisis. 
Film critics have praised Hitchcock for de-emphasizing the planetary overtones in the story, for the way he focuses on the development of character, on the birds' effects, rather than on the birds themselves. But what if we focused on the birds themselves? This is where adding concrete details about the setting of an adventure story might prompt a kind of adventurous listening that hears quiet, unfamiliar, and unexpected voices that are buried in the mix. Ironically, to get a fuller picture of the birds at the macro level, we need to zoom in to a level that's even more micro than the interpersonal dynamics between the characters. Alfred Hitchcock was inspired to develop a film adaptation of The Birds after he read newspaper accounts about an unusual event that took place in Santa Cruz, California in 1961. The Monterey Bay area of California attracts many migrant seabirds, including sooty shearwaters, which breed in the southern hemisphere and migrate to Alaska. In August of 1961, Flocks of sooty shearwaters passing through Monterey Bay were flying into objects and dying on the streets. The cause of the birds' behavior was a mystery, until 2002, when a team of scientists began to study a similar event that involved brown pelicans and that occurred in the 1990s. The scientists concluded that in both cases, the birds had ingested domoic acid, a neurotoxin produced by a microscopic diatom called pseudonychia. Diatoms are a kind of microscopic plankton that serve as the base of the food chain in many marine ecosystems. When pseudonychia produce large amounts of domoic acid, the result is a harmful algal bloom sometimes called a red tide, and these can be fatal to seabirds, sea mammals, and people who eat food contaminated by domoic acid. They are the stuff of life, the base of the ocean's food chain, the microscopic plants called algae. But increasingly, the bottom of the food web is turning toxic, becoming deadly blooms of algae, sometimes red, sometimes brown, or other colors, collectively known as red tides. They kill fish, marine mammals, seabirds, and sometimes people, and they are spreading. Harmful algal blooms have been growing in frequency and in intensity in recent years, and there's evidence that this increase is the result of anthropogenic factors like fertilizer runoff from agriculture and global warming. The summer of 2015 saw the largest harmful algal bloom ever recorded off the west coast of the United States, stretching from central California all the way to Alaska. In some places, the bloom was 40 miles wide and 650 feet deep, and likely caused the death of whales, seals, fish, and birds. Harmful algal blooms can have devastating consequences for local economies as well. Along with the human cost, there is a financial cost attached to red tides. Tens of millions of dollars lost every year by commercial fish and shellfish farms in coastal waters.
bringing details about harmful algal blooms into the mix can concretize the adventure that we find in the birds. The bird attacks occur not in any abstract space, but in a coastal town that lies on the root of bird migration and the ecosystems that support it. So like the stowaway ship's rats in Three Skeleton Key and the mobile bivouacs of E. Burcelli in Line Engine versus the Ants, The Birds is revealed to be a story about how humans share the globe with other kinds of non-human mobility. And as with those other two episodes, The Birds is one of Escape's infrastructural adventures taking place along a contact zone between natural spaces and human infrastructure. In these first three episodes of my podcast, we've been thinking about spatial scales of a narrative. But starting in the next episode, we'll be thinking more about temporal scales, scales of time. With this in mind, Let's return one last time to the radio adaptations of Du Maurier's The Birds to see how the story ends. The escape broadcast ends as Nat listens to static on the radio and birds peck through his cottage door. I listened to the sound of the splintering wood and I wondered how many million years of memory were stored in those little brains behind the stabbing beaks, the piercing eyes, now giving them this instinct to destroy mankind with all the depth precision of machines. And switched on the wireless, was dead. I reached for the cigarettes. There was only one left in the packet. I lit it. I threw the empty packet on the fire and watched it burn. Likewise, the Lux Radio Theater version ends with the family barricaded in their cottage. When will it end? How will it end? And as I sit here staring at the pages that I have written, I cannot help wondering why. Why the Almighty has decreed that this is to be the end. The Lux version has an added twist, a frame story about a London book publisher who we meet at the start of the broadcast. Our scene is London and the office of a successful publisher of books. With him sits Jenkins, his editor. Before them on the broad, shining surface of the desk is a manuscript, tattered, worn, its bulk held together with a bit of string. Strange way to submit a story. You say there was no address on it? No, the author left no address. But I wish you'd read it, sir. You like it, huh? It's terrifying. I can't seem to get it out of my mind. Hmm. All right, Jenkins, all right. I'll read it. But mind you, it'd better be good. Just read it, sir. Title, The Birds, by John Waite. 
As the publisher reads, we dissolve to the opening of Du Maurier's story. And then, at the end of the broadcast, we return to the London office. Is this the entire manuscript, Jenkins? Yes, sir. That's all there is. Well, you're our editor. What do you make of it? Prophetic. That's what the story is. Almost a warning. Oh? In what way, Jenkins? Well, sir, I think it has to do with nature and her system of checks and balances. You see, what he's saying is that a man, with his ever-recurring wars, his new weapons of destruction, threatens to destroy not only himself, but all forms of life. And nature might find a way to prevent this. By wiping out man, you mean? Getting rid of him? Yes, sir. Nature, or the Almighty, call it what you will, just isn't going to allow all life to come to an end. And so, through the birds, it will quite simply take care of the situation. Hmm. Yes, Jenkins. Perhaps that's it. Perhaps. Who knows? Over the course of my podcast, we're going to hear several examples of radio adaptations that use frame stories in interesting ways to reimagine the central narrative. The frame story in Lux's version of The Birds kind of pulls the narrative in two directions at once. It blunts the apocalyptic dimensions of the story by suggesting that the editors have no knowledge of the bird attacks, and this implies that the world has continued beyond the climactic scene at Nat's cottage. But at the same time, Jenkins' speech gives voice to an ecological and apocalyptic interpretation of the story, and it's delivered by a character that's got a lot more credibility than the drunk in the restaurant scene in Hitchcock's film. Jenkins really gets the story resonating on a macro level of temporal scale. We're being told that this is a story about the end of the human species. At the time of its original broadcast, listeners probably understood Jenkins' speech in relation to their anxieties about nuclear war. Revisiting the radio versions of the birds with an adventurous ear can show us how the story speaks to our own time, of climate change and mass extinction. Jenkins refers to nuclear weapons as a threat to all forms of life, but at the time of that broadcast, there was an equally ominous acceleration occurring in fossil fuel consumption and CO2 emissions, which is now driving global warming. Adventurous listening is a way to hear those new overtones in an old story. Given what we've learned about the setting of the birds and its connection to bird migration and the chain of interrelationships that produce harmful algal blooms, I think it's time that we shift our attention to the birds themselves. The soundtrack to Alfred Hitchcock's film is famous for its terrifying electronically produced bird sounds. But if we choose to focus on the birds themselves, a better soundtrack might be recent field recordings that reveal the drama and beauty of bird behavior. 
We're listening now to the sounds of startling murmuration, as heard in Jan van Eyken's 2015 film, The Art of Flying. The film depicts a massive flock of birds, all moving in synchrony, their movements creating sublimely beautiful patterns and sounds. Hitchcock's electronic soundtrack is well-suited to a depiction of flocks of birds as a terrifying, monstrous, invading alien army. Field recordings, like Van Eyken's, are better suited to a time when bird flocking, like the behavior of ant colonies, is appreciated as an example of complex, emergent intelligence. So, if we want to listen adventurously to the birds, The story needs a new soundtrack. Shifting our attention to the birds themselves would also require realigning the cast of characters in the story to include microscopic diatoms, planetary weather patterns, and coastal economies. This approach wouldn't ignore the humans in the story, but it might shift our attention to the farmers and fishermen, who are usually just bit players in the background. The ornithologist in Hitchcock's film, Mrs. Bundy, might actually be the hero of the story. And, most important, the birds would no longer be the villains. Their raucous calls would not signal aggression, but the cries of death agony, giving voice to the slow violence being inflicted on coastal ecosystems. The sonic multitudes that we've heard on these first three episodes of my podcast are figures of an Anthropocene epoch in which humans and non-humans increasingly overlap, intersect, and collide. The uncanny sounds of escapes rats, ants, and birds need to be heard anew. As the polyphonic melodies of these encounters become increasingly intertwined and their rhythms increasingly urgent. ESC was written and produced by me, Jake Smith, and published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press under a Creative Commons NC license. Post-production for the podcast is by Liam Davis. Special thanks to Mary Francis and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its support of the Fulcrum platform on which this publication is hosted. 
You can find all 10 episodes of ESC and learn more about the sound artists and environmental issues that I discuss at www.press.umich, that's U-M-I-C-H, edu slash p slash e-s-c. Thanks for listening.